Please turn with me in your Bibles to one of Paul's other letters, the letter to the Colossians. We are in Colossians chapter 2, and we will look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Before we look at Colossians 2, 6 through 10, I'm going to read for us the last portion of Colossians 2, 5, because it is within that context that helps us understand um, the therefore or the so then that Paul gives us in verse 6. So read with me beginning in the second half of Colossians 2.5. I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, or therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You have called us to walk in Jesus. And by your word, we can see clearly the path to which we are called to walk. And so give us your grace today to receive your truth in faith. And to know that you give us your truth in love. Change us so that we may be obedient to your will. Change us so that we might live always for your glory. And we pray all this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you know that I dabble in running. I am at best consistently inconsistent in trying to exercise on a semi-regular basis. I actually began running when I was in college. I, I, I was not athletic much at all in high school, but when I was in college, I had my best friend Scott and I worked together at Publix, and Scott started running, and Scott wanted a, a, a partner to run with him, so I, was, I made the mistake of lamenting to him one day that I was hoping to get into better shape, and he said, hey, I run. Why don't you come out and run with me? We were not the smartest of people. We would work a shift at the grocery store. We would usually get there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The store would close at 11. We'd get everything cleaned up and shut down by about 1 o'clock in the morning, and we'd head out to Lake Hollingsworth and go running. 2.85-mile loop around Lake Hollingsworth. We'd start around 1 o'clock. We'd end around 2 o'clock in the morning and go home. There were nights we did not work together. And yet I knew that the previous night when Scott had worked that he had gone out to run. So I would go out to run the night I worked because my friend was the motivation for me to run. Now, over time, I quit running. Uh, I pulled a muscle one time. I got married. I got a full-time job. I got kids. I got lazy. I got all of those things. And so I quit running until about three years ago. Another person came to me and said, hey, I want to start running. Zachary came to me about three years ago and said, why don't we run? Why don't we train for a race? And believe me, there were days where I did not want to go out and run, but I knew my son was expecting me to. And so I did. 
And, and in both of those situations, every time I was tempted to quit, I remembered why I had started. One was to spend time with my friend Scott. The other was to spend time with my son, Zachary. There were races that have come and gone throughout those things and races will motivate you for a little while. And I call my my I call my racing sloth racing because that's about all that I'm going to beat. But um, when the race is in, I still have to go out and, and run again because I, I really do enjoy it. Once I got to the point where I didn't think I was going to die, I really did enjoy it. But it, it's always that initial motivation that brought me back to running. That continues to be the motivation. It's where I started is where I hope to end. And Paul shows us that the Christian walk is that way as well. We are tempted at times to think I started with Jesus on my Christian walk. I need other help, however, to continue on it. Paul tells us today in giving us two commands that we end where we began. We began our walk with Christ We will finish our walk with Christ. And the two commands he gives us that we're going to look at is that first command, walk in Christ. And the second is beware of forgetting Christ. Paul begins this passage by looking back to the last portion or the last portion of the previous verse, which is where we started reading. You see, if you have the NIV there, you see the first two words of verse six are so then those are. That's the same word in the original language that is oftentimes translated therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, a pastor friend of mine likes to say, you need to stop, look backwards and see what it's there for. So he is saying, Paul says, look, you are firmly rooted in your faith in Christ. Therefore, do something. And to do something that he says to do is to continue to live in the same way that you were brought to faith. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. That phrase continue to live is actually literally to walk in him. We just we describe the Christian life as walking. We describe it as walking with Jesus but Paul says to walk in Jesus and we'll we'll talk we'll flesh out that distinction here in just a couple minutes. But he says you started this walk, you were set upon the path, you found salvation and redemption through believing in Jesus Christ by calling him Lord. And you are tempted by the philosophies of the world and the misapplication of the law of the Old Testament you are tempted to grab onto those things as the means to keep you on the path, as the means to continue to pursue holiness. But he says, no. He says, you started in Christ, walk in Christ. Now, there are four characteristics that Paul gives us here of people who walk in Christ. Now, we'll we'll look a little bit more fully in chapters three and four about some specific things that Paul commands us to do, but he gives us these four characteristics. The first characteristic that he gives to us is that they are rooted. Rooted is an agricultural word. In fact, we we referenced this idea when we read 
Um, Psalm 92, at the end of Psalm 92, the psalmist says the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness. If we were to look at Psalm 1, it would say that the man who is righteous is like a tree planted by the streams of water. In fact, we could read throughout the Psalms and see this imagery of the righteous man or the child of God is someone who is planted, who is rooted like a tree. The second characteristic of the one who walks in Christ is that they are built up. This is an an architectural word. It's a foundation word. If we were to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, we would read these words. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The person who walks in Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of which Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone that keeps everything true, that keeps everything right. Thirdly, the man or woman who walks in Jesus is strengthened in faith. Do you know our faith needs to be made stronger? All of us could pray the prayer of the man in the Gospels that says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. But we need to be strengthened in our faith. And that strengthening comes through the teaching of the word. It comes through the tradition of the gospel handed down through us, through the apostles and prophets, through the good teaching and preaching of God's word. Doctrine is what strengthens us. Now, I know in many American churches today, doctrine is a bad word. But even from the foundation of the church, Cyril of Jerusalem, a third or fourth century church father said, The knowledge of doctrines is a precious possession. There is need of a vigilant soul since there are are men who would deceive you by philosophy and vain deceit. How are you strengthened in your faith? How will you know false teaching if you don't know the true teaching? Now, there's something interesting about these first three characteristics before we get into the fourth characteristic. In the original language, they're all in the passive voice. Now, if if you remember your English grammar, and please don't shut down. I know I said English grammar. But if you remember your English grammar, what does... If if I am being built up, am am I the one doing the building up? No, somebody else is building me up. If I am being rooted, am I doing the rooting? If I am being strengthened, am I doing the strengthening? No, it's being done to me through the spirit. And that's the distinction between walking with Christ and walking in Christ. Going back to the idea of running, I read a story several years ago about a man who was a triathlete. Triathlons are a combination of swimming, running and bicycling. They have an Ironman triathlon every year, which is like four miles of swimming, 26 miles of running and 100 miles of bicycling. People finish it in a day. 
They're crazier than I am. But this story was not an Ironman triathlete. It was a man who just did much shorter triathlons. But his his biggest supporter, which I believe was his brother, was involved in an accident and became a, a quadriplegic and was stuck in a wheelchair. But he wanted to be able to run with his brother. He wanted to be able to continue to compete with his brother in these triathlons. And so his brother trained with a boat strapped to his back for the swimming portion with a, a seat attached to the back of his bicycle for the bicycling portion and with a, a large stroller that he could push for the running portion of the triathlon. And many people said that these two brothers ran with each other, but the reality was they did not. The one brother could look at his brother in a wheelchair and say, come on and run with me and take off. And what's going to happen to the brother in a wheelchair? He's stuck. He's left there in a sense. And, and, and all analogies about God and Jesus break down. But in a sense, the handicapped brother runs in his brother. We are totally dependent upon Jesus for the ability to walk in him. We cannot do it ourselves. We cannot set ourselves upon the path. We cannot keep ourselves upon the path. It is only in Jesus that we are able to walk. We walk in Jesus. We don't walk with him because we are totally dependent upon him. So the fourth characteristic of the man who walks in Christ or woman who walks in Christ is that they are overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing is a word that in Greek would initially have described a river that was flooding its banks. Now, it is it's horrible right now what is happening in Nebraska in the Midwest as the rivers are flooding and wiping out cities. But if you look at the pictures of those floods as those as those waters creep, unlike what happened here in 2016, those waters are creeping up above the banks of the river. And if you watch the city areas around the river, the water flows in between all the buildings. It's even flowing into all the buildings. And as destructive of that is, it's the picture of what we have here. The man or woman of God who walks in Christ overflows with thankfulness, overflows with thanksgiving to God for what he has done in saving us. We, I, I prayed through Philippians 2 earlier. Think about that. Be like Jesus Christ, Paul opens up and says, who, though being equal with God, did not feel like equality with God was something to be held on to, was something to be grasped, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, becoming human, becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. So that we might joyfully call Jesus Christ Lord, not be forced in judgment at the end of time to do that, but joyfully call Jesus Christ Lord. Does that make gratitude bubble up and overflow out of you so that it fills every aspect of your life? Does it cause you to joyfully explode in praise and thanksgiving to God? For what he has done for you? Or does it just cause you every now and then to go, you know what? I got better things to do. I wish I would hurry up. 
I'm not talking about a mere simple God, thanks for my salvation. Amen. I'm talking about gratitude overflowing and into your entire life. Gratitude flowing and overflowing the banks of the river that you are. So that the people around you may think you're a little weird. And yet they know for sure that you are thankful for what God has given to you. First, Paul calls us to walk in Christ. And then he tells us to beware of forgetting Christ. Paul's second command begins there in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. See to it is the word beware. No one takes you captive. Taking you captive is the word kidnapping. Beware, Paul says. Look out for false teaching because you can be snatched away. By false teaching from the path. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The sheep know me, the sheep know my voice, but they don't know the voice of the false or the wicked shepherds. If we forget Christ. We can be horse rustled, sheep rustled. By the false teachers, by the false shepherds. By the wicked helpers who are there only to feed upon the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. And Paul says that this false teaching has a a, a two part source. The first is human tradition. Kind of plain and simple. False teachers are typically human. More than typically human, always human. And so the teaching originates in them, but it has a far more sinister origination as well. The basic principles there is a word that has very many meanings. And one of the meanings is the demonic powers of this earth. False teaching is rooted in Satan. Satan wants nothing more than to kidnap the sheep of Jesus and try to rip them from his hands. And so whenever false teaching comes in, we must squash it out. And why must we squash it out? Why is false teaching so bad? Because it forget it causes us to forget who? Jesus. Paul, once again, he has said it earlier in chapter one. He says all the fullness of God, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ. What does he mean by the fullness of God? Everything that God is, all of his attributes, every iota of his being dwells in Jesus in bodily form. Many commentators think that Paul was addressing an early form of a heresy that found its fullness about a 100 years later than this. If that's the case, we can see that this addresses a part of that particular Gnostic heresy or Gnostic heresy because it starts with a G. And one of the things that that Gnosticism taught was that Jesus was the last of a long line of semi-divine beings who just kind of popped their way out of this 
formless, impersonal, Star Warsy, Forcey type being. And that he was the last and least divine of all these semi-divine beings. Paul says no. He is fully divine. All the fullness of God's deity dwells in him in bodily form. We see here Paul dealing with the union between Christ's two natures, his human nature and his divine nature. And then he goes on to say that you, the church, have been given fullness in Christ. Now, does that mean that once we receive Christ, we now become divine? No, not at all. It means that we have everything we need for salvation. Paul, this is this section is a summary section. He's summarizing some of his words from previously. What do we need? We need reconciliation. We need maturity. We need knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And we need God's revelation. Well, first or Colossians 1, 24 through 27 tells us that Jesus is the revelation of God's mystery of reconciling sinners. Colossians 1, 21 and 23 tells us that Jesus is the reconciliation that we need. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says that we are brought to maturity through Jesus and then presented to God. And in order to be brought to maturity, we need knowledge, understanding and wisdom. And guess what? Colossians 2, 1 through 5 tells us. That Jesus is the means to get the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding we need to be brought to maturity. The fullness that we need is Jesus. The salvation that we need is Jesus. The strength for sanctification that we need is Jesus. And yet we are tempted, brothers and sisters. I am tempted. You are tempted to say, okay, I need help getting over X, Y, or Z. So what do I need to add to my salvation to get over this sin? To get over this hump toward holiness? We have entire religions in our world built upon the premise that Jesus is not enough. Our holiness Our morality will be added to Jesus' righteousness and grace to get us into heaven. And brothers and sisters, that is human tradition and demonic. As another pastor friend of mine says, that comes straight from the depths of hell and smells like smoke. Paul says, remember Jesus. He is the fullness of everything you need for salvation. We are instructed today to walk in Christ and to beware of forgetting Christ. What, how do we remember Christ? How do we decipher false teaching from true teaching? Warren Wearsby says the fundamental test of any religious teaching is where does it put Jesus, his person, his work? Does it rob him of his fullness? Does it deny either his deity or humanity? Does it affirm that the believer must have some new experience to supplement his experience with Christ? If so, that teaching is wrong and dangerous. What do you do with teaching that you hear? Whether it's from me or on television or in books. Teaching that claims to be Christian. Wearsby, Paul says... 
ask, what are they teaching about Jesus? I encourage you, no, I ask you to ask yourself every Sunday when you go home, after sitting in this room, listening to me to talk for 20 to 30 minutes or however long I ramble on, ask yourself, what did I say about Jesus? Did I give Jesus the most important place in my life, in his life? Or did I say Jesus can get me started, but may not be enough to get me to the finish line? Ask yourself, what did I teach me about Jesus? That's the most that's the most basic way you can begin to discern between good teaching and false teaching. Now, I'm human. I'm going to mess up. If I do mess up and you ask the question, iron sharpens iron, brothers and sisters, come to me and say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you got that particular teaching on Jesus. Correct. Do it in love. I'm fragile enough as it is. And then the other thing that we do to keep Jesus preeminent in our life, to remember that we are walking in him is to overflow with thanksgiving. I encourage you earlier in the sermon today to be to thank God for your salvation. And to go beyond just saying, Jesus, thank you for my salvation to overflow with thanksgiving. How do we overflow with thanksgiving? I, I have been. As I've prepared this sermon this week, these last couple of days, I truly believe that God drove me to a passage that I have always found intellectually stimulating. But this week has become just a source of overflowing ingratitude for me. And that's Romans 8, 29 through 30. We're all very familiar with Romans 8, 28. In fact, take a second to turn to Romans 8, 29 through 30, if you would. While I kind of give us the context here, we're very familiar with Romans 8, 28, because we know that all in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What is the good that God works out in everybody that is called according to his purpose? Verses 28, 9 through 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be firstborn among many brothers and those he predestined. He also called those he called. He also justified those he justified. He also glorified. As you sit down in prayer the next time you you want to thank God for your salvation, turn to this passage and think, Okay, God foreknew me. From the foundation of time in eternity past, God, in his infinite knowledge, knew me. He knew my joys. He knew my victories. He knew my successes. He knew my sadness, my shame. But most importantly, he knew my sin. Every single sin that I have committed or will commit in my life, God knew. And God knew what that sin deserved. Which is judgment. In light of that, it's the next thing he says. Those he foreknew, he predestined. In light of everything I have done to shake my fist in God's face, everything that I would do, because remember, in time, eternity past, I was not there. In light of everything God knew that I would do to rebel against him, 
He destined my life for salvation. For reconciliation to God. Because I'm such a wonderful person, right? Because I'm such a great preacher, right? No, because it brought him glory. My boring salvation story brings God more glory than him just leaving me in my trespasses and sins. Your salvation story, whether it's boring or exciting, brings God more glory than leaving you in your trespasses and sins. God knew all of your sins, too. And yet he destined you for salvation. Not only did he destine you for salvation, he ordered your life so that you would be called. He set all of history in motion. He set all of your life in motion to bring you to that point in your life where you heard the gospel proclaimed. Sometimes once, sometimes many times. Then he made the gospel happen. He sent Jesus. To be born of a virgin. To live a perfect life that none of us could live. To die a death that all of us deserved. So that we could have the life that he had earned by keeping the law. And that's how you got justified. And then, brothers and sisters, he didn't just justify you. He has glorified you. We don't feel it. We ache, we ail, we anxiously await the day when Jesus returns and we get our glorification. But in Jesus, he has done it. That is the gratitude that should well up in you. When you consider your salvation. You want to keep Jesus preeminent in your life? Pray through scriptures like this, whether it's this, whether it's Isaiah 53, whether it's Psalm 130, whether it's Psalm 51. Whether it's John 1, when scriptures specifically teach about God's work of salvation, drop to your knees, literally or metaphorically, and say, Lord, thank you for calling me even though you knew me. Lord, thank you for saving me even though you knew me. Or thank you for glorifying me even though you knew me. And the gratitude will well up. Find ways to overflow in gratitude to God for the salvation you have been given. Paul calls us to walk in Christ. Paul calls us to beware of forgetting Christ. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words from Paul. How wonderful they are to remind us that we are not on this path through our own effort. Our own effort leaves us in danger of the fires of hell. And yet you have done the work to take people that you knew were rebels against you and save them. Not because of anything in us, but simply for your glory. Help us to remind us, help us to remember that we are rooted, that we are built up, that we are being strengthened through the work of the spirit in the word. And help us to remember Jesus and to seek him in all teaching. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.